Hello, and welcome to the Pioneers Wanted podcast. This show is all about pioneers. We believe that the business world is stuck in a dangerous comfort zone. Short-term thinking, living on past glories, and running from disruption. That's bad for them, bad for their teams, and bad for society as a whole. We can do better. Pioneer philosophy is the antidote. Pioneers play a long game, challenge the status quo, and chase a better, more purposeful future. They're also great to hang around with and important to learn from. So now more than ever, we need to be adopting pioneer philosophy as leaders in organisations both large and small. My name is Philip Clark, and in this episode I was joined by Simon Coley of Karma Cola. We explored Kiwi ingenuity, fair trade, the cola business, and what happens when you give a group of 12-year-olds a block of polystyrene, a paraffin burner, and a burning desire to win. Enjoy the episode. My guest today is Simon Coley, co-founder of Karma Drinks. I've wanted to invite Simon onto the show because he's got really interesting perspectives on the Pioneer Challenge. He's designed and launched disruptive ventures on both sides of the planet, as startup and in large corporations. His interests and experiences span the worlds of energy retailing, banana supply chains, and ethical soft drinks. And I know that he'll have lots to share. Welcome to the show, Simon. Thank you, Phil. So we first met maybe eight or 10 years ago, uh, connected by the Kiwi Mafia. I'm, I've kind of admired what you've done in that eight or 10 years, uh, as you've built a really interesting range of businesses and really purposeful range of businesses. But before we explore your venturing experiences, I'd like to get into the origins of your character and your outlook. So perhaps you can tell us a bit about growing up in, uh, in New Zealand and the big influences on you. Sure, Phil. It's interesting you talk about the Kiwi Mafia. I think that the crowd you run with really does make a big difference to you know, the, the journey, if you like. And I remember meeting you with Margaret Cooney, who was working on PowerShop, one of the ventures that I had the pleasure and the kind of challenge of working on with a group of pretty talented people, including Ari Sargent, who um, was the key founder and CEO of PowerShop. Margaret was one of the very early staff. You know, we had a handful of people working from a, a, a makeshift office somewhere in Wellington. She's now the CEO of PowerShop. So she's traveled in a similar way through a myriad of different experiences, setting up something that was pretty disruptive when it started and is still incredibly relevant, Telling, showing people how much energy they consume in order for them to become more informed can customers um, was a pretty radical idea 10 to 15 years ago when we started that. 10 years ago when we started that. Um, and it's still really important. And it's one of those themes that empowering people to understand their power as consumers is something that I've always found pretty fascinating, given that whether it's bananas, electricity, or in more recent times, soft drinks, knowing the origin of the thing you are buying really informs your choice. I grew up in New Zealand, in Christchurch, and I think that in, in the, you know, my formative years, just being able to run out of the back of the house on any given day and either go to school or play without too many constraints. Namely, there weren't many fences in, from our backyard all the way to the paddocks behind us. was a, a pretty good upbringing for any kid, I think. And both my parents were teachers. So my brothers and I had a pretty fortunate childhood of being able to explore pretty much whatever we wanted. Although Christchurch isn't a big town, it did have a, give us this great opportunity to, to sort of think we could do anything. And I think that's something about being in the new world, especially in a place like New Zealand, where people tend not to specialise early in their careers or have had to adapt quite quickly to challenges um, and come up with new solutions to them that probably started you know, originally with the the, uh, the Maoris, Maori travellers who, you know, navigated across the Pacific to get there from Hawaii 
given that to get across from Hawaii to New Zealand and go on that journey was required a pretty resourceful approach to navigation and sustenance. But also, you know, a lot of the people that originally settled, the European people that originally settled New Zealand didn't have a lot to work with. And we have this idea, it's called kind of Kiwi ingenuity. It's not new, but, you know, we're kind of proud of the, the idea that we use whatever resources available to fix things. And there's, a, there's another saying about being able to use a piece of number eight wire to fix anything on a farm. And it's kind of a, th- a, a meme, I guess, from my childhood and, and long before that, that, um, you know, if it's broken, you can't really rely on someone else to make it work if you can't find a way yourself because you're not always close to a mechanic or, you know, in some cases, other professional services or specialists. You kind of have to figure it out for yourself and have a crow. So it's never been a problem, I think, for a lot of people from the background that I've had to just have a go at things. Um, it bo- has both its advantages and disadvantages. Um, I wish I knew more about some of the things I've had a try at before I started them, but I don't think I would ever learn without just you know not being too frightened of, of trying it. Well, one of the things I love about hanging out with Kiwis is that is exactly that ingenuity you describe. And they always introduce me to somebody who's set up a world-class business doing something mind-blowing that I simply hadn't come across. And it is this microcosm of ingenuity. What, what, what were your kind of earliest uh, entrepreneurial experiences? Or when did, did that pioneer character first express itself for you? <laughs> Having, when you gave me the questions to, to, as a sort of prompt for this interview, I was casting back thinking, you know, was there a moment where, uh, you know, I did something differently or, you know, and I think there's probably a series of experiences, again, as a kid learning, uh, just being given the opportunity to, to take, you know, manage risks. But one thing that sticks in my mind is that I was a Boy Scout and in my early teens, sort of 12 or 13, I suppose, um, there was a, a race that was announced to get um, rafts for, for all the scouts in the area that we lived in, in, in Canterbury, to compete in a raft race. The idea was that you had to get a raft that was, uh, I think the only rule was that it was a scouts, scoutsman-like or something, you know, construction, to get a raft of your own design and build from one side of the estuary outside of Christchurch to the other, which is probably a kilometre and a half or so. Fantastic. Um, and I thought, wow, well, I wonder what the quickest way to get across that would be. And the other, the other rule was that you had to cook a meal for the people on the raft on the way over, which, you know, presented another set of challenges. And I thought, you know, if we just paddled something across and had a little, you know, cooker, little buns, uh, you know, you could make these little cookers out of a tin can with some paraffin and cardboard that I'd learned in another scout thing and make it, you know, heated up a tin of baked beans and ate that. That would constitute a meal. So we could do that. And actually all we have to do is get from A to B as quickly as possible. And probably the least complicated way of doing that is just paddling. And if we got a, you know, chunk of polystyrene, because I used to see them out the back of this place where I worked packing up boxes for a supermarket, um, we could just float on that. You know, we could carve out some little holes to, to, to nail in we could make some paddles, and we just go go as fast as we could across this course. How old were you at this time, Simon? Oh, I was 12 or 13, I think. So I was thinking, okay, we'll have a crack at that, and I got a couple of mates, and we, we had to take, you had to take four people or five people across was the other rule. So we got the lightest guy we could find to cook the meal in the middle of this chunk of polystyrene, and the other four of us were going to sit on each corner of it and just paddle. And, and as a sort of a, a compliment to the need for this to be a sort of scouts-like construction, we put a flag on it. Anyway, we got down to the estuary on the morning of this race, and there were these amazing-looking craft. There were things made out of big logs with 44-gallon drums tied to them and masts and sails and 
we were looking around going, wow, some people really have put gone to a lot of trouble to build these beautiful-looking craft. And it was quite windy. And I thought, oh, wow, I wonder if that wind's going to help them or not, because the wind wasn't really going in the direction of the, uh, the course. Anyway, the, uh, you know, the, the thing started and everyone launched their vessels and we started paddling as fast as we could and didn't really look back, just kept going flat out. And, you know, 10 minutes into it, we looked around and we saw that there weren't many people near us. In fact, most of the craft were being blown out sideways in a direction that wasn't really <laughs> the finish line. So we got to the finish line. We were the first there by, I think we probably were the only ones that finished. Uh, there were a lot of boats rescuing the other craft. And um, when we finally got picked up by our parents and drove, driven around back to the beginning, no one had been there to meet us at the finish line. We, um, we were sort of a bit confused. But it had turned into something of a drama. You know, a lot of these boats were being rescued. And we were just sitting there wondering what was going to happen. I was um, I was surprised not to be given a prize. I thought that um, that you know we had won, uh, and we had cooked a meal, and all five of us had made it to the other end without needing to be rescued. And I did go up to the person who seemed to be convening the event and said, "Hey, um, you know, did we win?" Uh, he didn't really want to talk to me, and I I thought, "Wow, oh, this is funny. You know, this is kind of a." Obviously, the, the, the uh, ensuing calamity had definitely taken precedence over anyone getting to the finish line. But it made me think, you know, and again, guess in retrospect, you can, you can kind of tell the story with a little bit of embellishment. But, you know, the rules really didn't matter in that case. We had figured out a way to do it. Uh, it probably wasn't the way that anyone expected us to, and we made it there. And I was pretty happy with that. And the fact that we hadn't consumed any other resources because uh, we hadn't needed to be rescued. But it also made me think that I didn't really want to stay in the scouts for much longer. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we went off and did other things. But it was interesting. It was kind of that, I don't know, you can draw whatever analogy you like out of that. But it was, uh, I look back on it and I sort of still feel proud that we made it happen. And it didn't really matter that we weren't recognised for it. Two things kind of jump out for me. Number one, I'm glad that my 12-year-old son is not on a polystyrene raft with a paraffin burner because that would not end well. <laughs> the, uh, but, but, um, but there is something of the adventure in your culture and in you. And when I look at, when I look at what you've done in your career, there's a, there's a combination of ambition or adventure, but also this real driving purpose. You know, thinking of your Better by Design stuff early in your career with New Zealand T&E, your 42 Below stuff, and that's obviously a very famous brand now, your organic stuff, Power Shop, and, and latterly Takama. There's this DNA, this spine, which runs through all of that. At least it looks that way, which is really about a, a purpose behind what you're doing. I don't know if it felt that way. Did, did, it, did you ever get a sense that you were chasing uh, a kind of higher purpose? Or were you just impatient to make your mark and get on with some stuff? I always, I've, you know, all those things you mentioned, I've just found really exciting. And I think I didn't have a rationale for doing them other than they they kind of spun my wheels. Like the, you know, returning to New Zealand and being involved in trade and enterprise program to enable New Zealand businesses to sort of improve their performance through design thinking and better design products and services just sounded like a great thing to do. And I was really fortunate, again, in all of these circumstances of coming across, a, you know, another a group of people who were equally as excited about it and saw the opportunity. With the Better by Design thing, a friend of mine, Andy Ellison, invited me to have a look at a project he was pitching for because he knew that, you know, I was studying some sort of post-grad design management at the time. It's something I'd always been working in and I, you know, a former career in graphic design had sort of morphed into product development. And, you know, I'd always been fascinated in the systems of achieving those sorts of innovations. And at the time, I'd had, the again, the good fortune of working with an organization or a couple, but one in particular, IDO, who were, a, you know, a real benchmark 
service, design service and design thinking or, uh, business or, or consultancy out of Palo Alto. And I'd learned a lot just engaging with them for some projects back here and felt like that would be such fantastic learning to be able to apply to a range of different businesses that this program intended by the equivalent of New Zealand's Department of Trade and Industry to, to help sort of kickstart some of this thinking and with the intention of generating more revenue for the country through better products and services. The challenge with a place like New Zealand is that we're really good at growing grass. We've got some other great raw materials and our challenge has always been to add value to that. And uh, the then government saw a way of doing that through what they called a growth and innovation framework to invest in building that capability, the, you know, in inverted commas, knowledge economy around adding that value to services as much as raw materials. So there are some benchmark companies that came that were part of creating that. It was sort of a public-private partnership. Uh, businesses like Icebreaker, run by and founded by Jeremy Moon, who'd taken merino wool and made fantastic outdoor garments that were beautifully designed and very functional that would compete with, you know, brands in that industry in the world because of the experience and the understanding of the, the, the origins of those, um, of the fibres of the merino wool and the quality of manufacture and design. Um, others like Hamilton Jet, who were a, another pioneering business from New Zealand who invented the jet boat, the the... the the twin axial turbo flow, which is the thing that made the, the Hamilton jet jet boat actually go faster, pushing water out of its exhaust um, faster than it came in, was invented by a friend's dad. And I was always fascinated in going to see him, uh, George Davidson, who was a partner of John Hamilton who invented the Hamilton jet, and just being able to hang out in his garage with him. You know, those sorts of things were an inspiration to me, but also, you know, bringing that kind of thinking into a, a, a kind of more contemporary uh, commercial world was always fascinating and exciting. And like I said, the excitement of those things is what propelled me. It's only looking back that the idea of purpose sort of connects them. But I think that, you know, that's more of a product of the, the kind of community I grew up in and the, the kind of lessons I learned from my parents. Yeah, fantastic. And and those role models for a crucial in setting an expectation of ourselves, I think. You know, I think a lot of kids grow up with very self-limiting beliefs and expectations and, and the the counter to that sounds like some of the experiences you had where there weren't limits on the expectation on you and your role models were were building and originating entirely new things and bringing them into the world which I think is really exciting. I, I, if I understand right, around 2007, you then kind of made this step uh, in organic food and organic sort of food and drink supplies. Is that right? Yeah, well, that, again, that was, it's, the, it's the people you run with. I was very lucky to meet um, Chris Morrison, who I'd met uh, a little bit earlier than then through my work at, with uh, 42 Below for, for Jeff Ross, who founded... 42 Below and made a fantastic story about New Zealand in a product that wasn't typical of the place and made it relevant and interesting to markets all over the world. But but at the time that 42 Below was being purchased by Bacardi, Chris and I met to, because he then had a business called Phoenix Organic that he'd founded 30 odd years, 25 years before, that was a, a pioneering organics fruit juice and soft drinks company and very successful in Australasia. Chris is a committed organic champion and is now the the chair of the New Zealand's Organic Association and has always been trying to educate through making products that he believes are the right things to, to consume and supporting the kind of supply chain that enables that to happen, especially you know, the protection of soil and the sort of wider environment through organic horticulture and more recently through, well, always, but, but as it's becoming more and more prevalent through regenerative agriculture. So meeting Chris was was really fortuitous for me because I've, though I've always been interested in this. I didn't really, don't really have the skill to, or understanding of how those things work. And we'd been at a, the same time as, as I was working at, with Meridian Energy on 
using renewables for for fuel for electric vehicles. Chris and I met at a, a conference around a thing called the Leadership in a Climate of Change, which was, you know, it was a wee while ago now, but it was basically a, a kind of weekend away to consider what would be happening in the world because of the climate crisis. Chris had just come back from Samoa where he'd been uh, surfing and he'd seen a lot of, of really high quality organic produce not making it to market. And 50 years earlier, a good deal of the rural economy in Samoa was supported by selling fruit like tropical fruit like bananas to New Zealand. And as supply chains for those sorts of products have become more sophisticated, containerization had become prevalent, ways of packing and shipping these things have become more, more and more um, complex and, and arguably more efficient. Uh, and uh, supermarkets had gone from being, you know, fruit grocers or, you know, small independent businesses to, to big box um, retailers. The Samoan uh, industry and in, in bananas and pineapples and all the other great tropical fruits that came from there had kind of diminished. And instead, a lot of Samoans came to New Zealand looking for work. Now, we thought, you know, having seen all this stuff there, or Chris telling me about it and having this conversation about how, you know, buying and supplying produce from closer neighbours was probably a better way to go ultimately. We thought perhaps we could kickstart that, you know, that, that, that product supply chain again and thought we'd start selling Samoan bananas in New Zealand, which to me seemed a really straightforward problem to solve. You know, wouldn't anyone prefer to buy things closer to home from their neighbours than from the other side of the world? I realised how little I knew about importing bananas. Chris knew a bit about it, fortunately, but we still had some challenges. We got uh, the first few shipments, we had to tip over a bank uh, behind Chris's house, which caused a wasp infestation. By then, his brother Matt had joined us as our sort of financial brains. He'd worked in the army and had uh, more recently, after getting a, um, a master's in business administration, was working for the New Zealand Treasury. So he would be our kind of financial controller. Chris knew a lot about um, organic supply chains, and I would do the design of products that would make them attractive to people, like the marketing side of things. And so we called these bananas all good. We managed to get some in the market. They didn't sell very well because... When they ripen on trees in the islands, they taste delicious. But to force ripen them, and and at the, at the time we would bring the first lot in by air, it just meant that the the bananas tasted their best when they looked almost black. And people were used to eating a, a completely different style of fruit. So I took my then oldest daughter, Sophia, up to the local health food shop at the top of our street to buy the first all good bananas we could. And I gave one to her in the shop and she had a taste and she spat it out on the floor because <laughs> it was so starchy. You know, it was more like a potato than a banana. So I knew we had a bit of a problem then. And we very quickly realised that we had a market for this because people wanted to buy our all good products because, and it was stated pretty clearly in the way we presented these things and the way the brand had been designed, that they would be good for the land, good for the growers and good for consumers, hence the name. And, you know, that really did hit a kind of nerve in the market. And the, the people, I guess similar to us, that were interested in understanding the origins of the things they consumed and the quality and the impact they'd have as consumers. So we very quickly worked with Fair Trade to find a supplier that w was more reliable and ended up working with a, one of the earliest ever banana growing cooperatives in Ecuador, at El Guabo. And they've... Um, you know, we now sell four or five containers of those bananas a week in New Zealand. And we still have a relationship with the growers in Samoa. We, we finally worked out that we could dry the bananas over there and sell them dried in little packaging that we'd figured out we could supply the farmers with and they could do the drying and the packing themselves. So the, we, we made good of what wasn't a great kind of start. But it did teach us a lot about especially perishable food. But... um. You know, just how to work in that sort of channel. And again, it was a long way from what I was used to, you know, in, in software and um, utilities. 
but it did resonate in the same way that if you have if you give people control over their or or insight into the supply of the the things they consume there's a sort of reciprocal um you call loyalty or support for the for the offering i love that we can jump in a few minutes from palo alto and ideo to tipping festering bananas behind (laughs) uh behind the garden but that's the reality of the span of things that you've tried to do we we met because of PowerShop, and and I think we might do a separate episode trying to get some of that PowerShop crew back together because I find it a really inspiring story. But if I bring you a little bit closer then to to what you're doing now with Karma Drinks, what what is it that you spotted that that others didn't? So that I mean, the Karma Drinks was a an evolution, you know, and the next step for us having started this business, all good that was um, focused on. Or supplying high quality organic food and drink to people, and Chris had made a um, a really great cola at Phoenix. That when we were at forty two below, the, our vodka professor there, Jacob Bryan, has always rated it, and I've always thought he had the best taste buds of anyone I've ever worked with. Um, and he um, he was saying, you know, this is if you're going to mix a drink, this is the one. And it's always very hard to make a kind of um, an organic version of a highly processed product. You know? <laughs> I always thought that, that that cola challenge was an interesting one because you'd have to come up with something that tasted a lot like one that you know, you know, that everyone has somehow almost tattooed on their taste buds because of both the experience of drinking the world's most, you know, arguably one of the world's most famous brands and one of the most prolific consumer products. The definition of cola is already established in our in our psyche. Yeah, in, cult, in pop culture and perhaps sort of physiologically. You know, we're used to a certain flavour. You know, there's there's an almost you know weirdly perverse challenge in trying to make a better one because it's it's the thing that you know everyone's tried. <laughs> Pepsi still arguably didn't do us quite as well. Richard Branson had a crack at it. There are plenty of generic colas out there. How do you make a better cola? And our, the, the intent was always, you know, the same as with all good. Is it possible to create, you know, one of the most consumed products in the, in the consumer goods game that actually was beneficial? So was that, was that the driver? I'm really interested to know how clear the end goal was for you. You know, that measure of success, how clear that was when you started out. Was it just another product that, that you and Chris were working on? Or was there a sense of taking on... Having a mission, taking something on. Well, I mean, we kind of joke about that. You go, who would be stupid enough to take on a challenge like that? Like that's, you know, going to war with a pea shooter. We kind of went, first, the the exciting thing was, you know what? This could be quite interesting. There is such a thing as a cola nut, and no one knows that. So a lot of it was just the, the sort of journey of discovery that we were having, going, well, you know, if you think about it, the world's most consumed consumer good has traded on a product or a, or a plant that no one really knows about. You know, that's an opportunity. That's kind of exciting. I, I, you know, I may have overreached thinking everyone would be as excited as I was or we were by it, but it just felt like the right thing to do. And because we'd had this great relationship with some of the people at Fair Trade. Harriet Lamb, who was then the CEO, came over to talk about bananas. She wrote a book called um, The Banana Wars about why she became committed to setting up these markets for farmers that were being exploited in Latin America and in Africa. And she knew because of her experience in this pioneering fair trade um, movement with another man, a guy called um, Albert Tucker, who's now the chair of our Karma Foundation, uh, who grew up in Sierra Leone, and we had a vague idea that that's where you could get cola nut from. We'd done a little bit of research. And, and uh, when Harriet was visiting New Zealand, we asked her if she knew if there was a way of getting a fair trade certified cola ingredient. And she said, no, we don't. You know, in the list of things that we've made fair trade, it's, you know, it's not there yet. But I know someone that could help. And 
because of this experience with Albert, she introduced us. And pretty soon after that, we had found um, a village, that uh, a group of communities that Albert knew of that could supply us with cola, and they sent a little parcel of it to New Zealand, and we started experimenting with it and realised that, you know, thankfully the experience Chris had had and some of the other people we were working with to process this stuff and turn it into something that tastes really like an authentic cola, along with all the other dozen or so ingredients, um, that we could come up with something that was pretty convincing. So, you know, after plenty of trial and error, we had a, had a, a recipe we really liked and we thought was, you know, even better than the, the one that Chris had made earlier. And uh, we started hawking it. You know, that was the, I guess one thing had led to another and we found that we had a product. We sent the first box of them back to the village in Sierra Leone where we bought the cola from, which they found quite surprising. Did they like it? Yeah, it's sort of... (laughs) But they, they were just so, again, they were so excited about seeing something that they'd had a hand in making come back to them. And the story Albert tells about working with farmers in these situations is that like coffee producers and chocolate, you know, cacao growers, in his experience, not all of them had actually seen the finished product. So it was an automatic thing for us to think, oh, well, let's send some to them so they, we can celebrate this. You know, we've got this far. It's pretty good. But he said, you know, he he had on more than one occasion, he'd been the first person to take a bar of chocolate back to someone who'd grown the, the cocoa. And that, that, that disconnect between production and consumption is so profound that that almost opened up this opportunity of saying, maybe if people know a bit more about this, they become more connected to it. And therefore, like I was saying before, the goodwill should make up for that premium you have to charge for the product because it costs more to do this. The more abstract that relationship, you know, one assumes, the cheaper the product. Because you get to the point where it's totally synthesized and there's no connection back to, to its origins. <laughs> so I'm really interested in this translation of ethical purpose into business success. Because I think it was about 10 years ago you, you kicked off with the cola business. Give me a sense of, of how you've grown that as a business. Because I know you have reach all over the world and you've been building out a team. Give me a sense of the business side, if you will, that matches the, the purpose side. So I must admit that as a, a direct result of COVID, we are under some pressure at the moment as a business because we are used to selling, because this is a premium product, and the, the difference between, say, us and a major brand with lower cost of goods, you know, less of that supply chain to manage in the same way that we do. Like the proximity is not as important. You know, there's plenty of way of abstractions between supply and demand, I suppose. Um, there's a higher cost for us, and we've got to justify that cost by educating people. So our premium is, if you like, explained through the story we tell. And the best place we find to do that is restaurants and fast or fast casual dining, they call them, the sort of what, what the in the trade they're referred to as the on-trade, where you consume something on-premise. Those are all closed here at the moment. So the first week of the COVID lockdown, our sales dropped by 90-odd percent. They've come back, but we will, our fortunes are in the UK and Europe are connected to the prosperity of that industry, of hospitality. And at the moment, it's probably under the most pressure of, you know, all those sorts of consumer goods industry verticals. It will change. It will slowly, you know, the, the restrictions will be relaxed and people will go back to socialising and enjoying these sorts of drinks in public places. But it's a long way coming. So our channel, like you say, you know, through that Kiwi Mafia, has been to go and find the, our, our friends in uh, coffee shops and restaurants and sell to them and have them as excited about the story as we are so that their staff are interested in on selling it to their customers. Our challenge has always been to do that at scale. Even in some of the opportunistic markets we have, we've had people call us from all over the world, from 
Saudi Arabia, from Sweden, from Hong Kong, and ask to supply or be distributors of our products. And most of the time we go, if, if, if they're excited enough about it and they're prepared to pay for the delivery of the product, you know, we're pretty happy to help them because the fact that they've found us is a pretty good filter that, you know, they're committed to, to making this thing a success. So there's something in our story that's a driver of that growth. Um, but it has its limits because we can't drive down our cost of goods like many others can. We have less control over it because we rely on contract packing partners and, and a number of different players. We don't own manufacturing, for example. So, you know, we don't have the massive volumes that create economies of scale in the industry that we play in. So we're always pulling those levers to our best advantage. And a lot of it relies on goodwill, on people being willing to, willing, their willingness to support us because of the reason we're doing it. So purpose is an asset in that respect, but it's also, and I wouldn't call it a liability, but it's a, it's a controlling influence over price because we just can't make some decisions that would make the product cheaper and therefore more accessible. And that's what we're challenged with at the moment, especially in a time when uh, people question the value of products they buy because, you know, especially our wholesale buyers, because they're looking at how much margin they can make out of the things on their menus or in their shelves and making, you know, pretty important decisions about what they stock because they need to generate as much margin as they can, especially if they can only be catering for, say, a third of the custom they're used to in a pub or a, or a restaurant because of these uh, COVID-related restrictions. So I'm not – this is a pretty convoluted answer to the question, but I think this, this idea of success is twofold. I think having a brand that people know about and are committed to in some way or other – does feel fantastic. It's really great to know that something we've created has that audience and, you know, following of consumers. But to really make it more accessible is the next stage of the challenge for our business. And, and to, to make that happen, we've really started thinking about how we have to restructure. Uh, we've got a new uh, CEO, a guy called Ben Dando, who's very good. He's had a lot of experience in consumer goods and worked in businesses with similar purposes. Um, but he has a much more scientific approach towards the off-trade, the, the, the supermarket chain that we really need to be able to work in now. So, we're, you know, those are the sorts of adaptions we're making. And it's, this is the antithesis to that Kiwi ingenuity thing where you go, well, you get to a point with that. But when you're working in a, in a highly specialised market, you need the experience of that market at least to know what rules you're about to break. All of the organizations that you've built and scaled, and, and it has to be said, organizations that have been recognized, you know, with kind of world's fairest trader type recognition, most ethical company listing. So these are purposeful, important businesses. At some point, as a founder, your pioneering zeal needs to turn into, you need to get more leverage. You need your team to be able to achieve great things kind of without you. When did you hit that and how does that feel? Well, it still feels pretty strange because, you know, in my day-to-day, uh, I don't know, expectations of my own work, I want to be involved in things. You know, you start something, it's hard not to be, not to feel responsible for for the way it's performing. But I, I must say the most, the most uh, motivating thing for me at the moment is seeing other people do really well in our organisation. And the, 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 again, the experience of seeing Ben come on board and, you know, take on this challenge and just tackle it in a way that no one else in the, in our business would have to our great benefit has been really quite inspiring. And, you know, it's where you realize that there's something about having diverse DNA that's incredibly helpful. Like, I think we have probably suffered from not having a broad enough view of the challenges we face because just by definition you become quite narrowly focused if you've got if you deal with the same sorts of problems you know day in day out and it's quite hard to to uh you know lift your head above the parapet and be more strategic if that makes sense but when you bring people into the organization that have got broader skill or at least have depth in another area that you don't have depth 
it creates so much more resilience or just ability to deal with stuff in a much more reliable way. And I think, like many organizers, I've seen PowerShop go through similar things, that there's this, you know, there's all the energy that comes from the new, new thing. And then you have to figure out, is because protecting that is, is like, the, you know, innovation has fragility. You start something, you really need to protect it to get it up and running. Though, you know, with PowerShop, the way we did it was to move out of the, of the mothership and, you know, to Ari's credit, you know, protect the team so they could just get on with it without too much interference. But when it gets to a point where you're starting to take customers away from your parents, which is what happened with PowerShop, then there's a whole different pressure you've got to deal with. And that's where you've got to use the language of a larger organization in order to show the value back to them of not being a little bit pissed off because someone's stealing your customers. Now, I'm not saying it's the same behavior as I've observed in our own company and and Karma Drinks, but I think having a coherent and breadth of experience in the senior management team is really important because otherwise you're a scrappy startup all the time and it's good not to lose that. I feel like it's a really important, um, uh, you know, number of strands in our DNA, if you like, but you also have to temper it with some industry experiences that means that you don't make mistakes that other people have made before you. And they can be quite costly. So it's a, it's a difficult balancing act, but it's more, it's more about bringing the, uh, I don't know, the, the specialization without the constraints, you know, that you get skills in certain areas like manufacturing. You know, when you're making a product, there's plenty of constraints you just have to understand. And when you understand them, you can work within them really beautifully. But if you don't, if, you know, like me, you just assume anyone can make anything because they've been made before and you don't realise the limitations, you can probably get a little bit too enthusiastic about the innovation beyond the practicalities of delivering it. And it's tempering those things. It's always, it's the most fascinating part for me now is how you balance that out. Because the success comes from something that doesn't require all that energy of the scrappy startup all the time. Because it's hard to do that at scale. You know? I think it's really fascinating because you've got the big up, big company experience. You've got your own venturing experience. You've been doing this for for a while. You've been you know, building businesses for a couple of decades now. Well, having been through those cycles and faced down and addressed some of those challenges, if you took a moment to to reflect, what have you learned about yourself? You know, maybe it's a lesson that you'd go back and share with your earlier self, or maybe it's just a reflection. You know, I, it, often entrepreneurs and pioneers don't have an awful lot of time or, or intention to stand and admire what they've built. But how would you, how would you reflect on, on what you've learned about yourself? I think, I mean, I've always been a big believer that if you get the product and the story right, everything else will flow. You know, that if you're, if you're really a, appealing to you know if you're in a if you're in a, any kind of commercial enterprise someone's buying your product or service so you know because i come from a design background product appeal and performance uh and and the story that holds that together has kind of been my obsession at the expense of other things so what i I've always just thought that the rest will follow when you nail that. The thing I'm learning more and more is that that the constraint of what it costs to do that is the biggest challenge. It's kind of an age-old meme that it's like the the Apple idea. Just because you want a three-millimeter radius curve on the product and it creates an engineering problem that's worth millions and millions, doesn't mean that's the wrong thing to do, but you've got to have a pretty good reason to justify it. Like you really do have to have confidence that you can charge more for that little bit of extra beauty in the product. Now, I've always thought that that was the most important thing, that the aesthetic and the customer experience beget, you know, you sort of trumped any other business decision. Once you got that right, you didn't have to put as much energy into marketing. You know, the the Holy Grail is the perfect product. You don't have to sell it, it sells itself. And weirdly, our story is what sells our product. So, you know, 
the counter to that is that if you didn't have a label on, say, Karma Cola, it would look like other colas. So it would be the same. But the label and the story that encapsulates it is actually the product because our supply chain is our product. You know, it's the origin of the ingredients that make it what it is that we really want people to understand. So there's a kind of a challenge there in going, the perfect product in this case is doing a better job of a product that lots of people are used to. PowerShop wasn't different to that. It was about making electricity a proper consumer good and not just a commodity so that people valued it. Because you just plug something into a socket, you don't think about what's coming out of that socket into the appliance. You celebrate the fact that your stereo is working. <laughs> well, you don't even, you know, you just listen to it. It's invisible. But every time you turn something on, you're using a resource that's not, not that's finite, you know, unless you get sustainable renewable goods of uh, electricity. So all these things are important. So to answer the question, what the advice I'd give myself is look at the numbers more closely, understand what it takes for to really, and this is a hard thing to do because a lot of this is becoming more measurable. I suppose, you know, the digital age gives us a lot better understanding of the cost of acquisition of a customer or the cost of a sale or the cost of manufacture of something. But I worry that the commercially, the experience I've had in, say, software or in weightless goods and services as opposed to those that are actually shipping atoms has blurred a little bit and when you're in the business of shipping atoms there are some costs you just can't reduce it's a very convoluted answer but you know basically look at the margins understand what it costs to do the job that you expect the product to do beyond the product and that's to sell enough to make it sustainable i think everything that i've seen that you've been involved with has been beautiful and inspiring and has kind of jumped jumped off the page or jumped off the shelf but you've got to earn your keep by having a business that's sustainable and that can fund its growth well when we're now responsible and say with karma drinks and to some degree with all good, the, we've separated those two businesses because they are so different. Like I say, tropical fruit and uh, you know manufactured product are quite different business models. So we've needed to, to, to clearly make them different enterprises. I think that we owe it to the people we're doing this for beyond the people consuming them for these businesses to be sustainable. You know, we don't really get the right to call karma drinks karma unless the people producing the ingredients benefit from it. So the most important thing for me now is that the karma foundation that underpins that is robust enough to continue with or without us. It's not because we're trying to create dependency with those beneficiaries, but we want to be able to keep on doing what we're doing. And the real innovation I'm seeing, and which is kind of fantastic, in the Karma Drinks business is in the Karma Foundation. I would, and I look forward to taking this further because I, I strongly believe that the amount of resource we apply to support the communities that we work with in Sierra Leone in relation or ratio to the benefit that's come out of that small amount of input is a really high ratio. Like, I think I'd like to do the study around this, but I think for every pound we spend on the ground in Sierra Leone, we probably get maybe 10 back in terms of value to that community. Now, it's pretty hard to quantify it that way because a lot of it is to do with empowering young people through education or hygiene that just and security of food supply that just helps people survive. But those things are tangibly different and better than before we were involved. So it sounds like as you professionalize the business, you're now looking to how you get satisfaction in a different area. Uh, and, and what's next for you? What is it that you're, you're going to be chasing? Um, I'm really interested in how we make the Karma Foundation, which is the way we deliver the, the kind of good that we talk about with Karma Drinks. Um, so it's uh, robust and sustainable in itself. The way, we, the way I've been observing the resources that Albert, who chairs the foundation, is able to corral um, from a very small amount of, of funding uh, on the ground in Sierra Leone is pretty impressive. And because we have this 
sort of underlying philosophy that we don't really know what's the best use of those funds or resources as well as those who benefit from them. We've always had this underlying theory of change, I guess you'd call it, that we ask the communities we buy the cola from and other ingredients what they would like to do with the funding. And then we enable that to happen rather than just hand the money over. It sort of started when we first calculated how much we thought we would earn from the sale of the first year's drinks um, that would go into this fund so that we could legitimately, you know, say what goes around comes around, that this is the karma that we're enabling. We Matt calculated it to be about ten thousand US dollars. So we thought, well, what are we going to do? We can't just write a check, although we need to put it in an account somewhere so it can be drawn down on by these communities. How should we do it? And we spoke with um, Dr. Hans Peter Muller, who was managing things for us as part of Welthungerhilfe, a German NGO. They're a bit like Oxfam that work out of um, the area that we we were operating in. And they, he'd helped us look for these communities that would to supply cola on that brief that they would benefit from the sale of the products and that we had enough of an understanding of how that infrastructure might work within the communities for that to happen. We used a, a committee that had already been set up called the TY Committee and that they had been established to pr- protect a small wildlife an island in the Moa River near the villages we principally trade with called TY Island. And because each of the villages we worked with had representation on that group, we were able to go to them and ask them what they needed. And they came back to us with, you know, we think we need to educate our kids and we don't really get to send the girls to school as much as boys because the eldest boy gets the first dibs on an education at high school. And then, um, you know, if the family can afford to, or at primary and high school, the family afford to, they send the next boy and then the girls. So the first thing we did was establish a scholarship for young women to go to school. And that's already seen just shy of 300 young girls through um, primary and hopefully, and tertiary and hopefully on to, oh, sorry, primary and secondary. and, And we're hoping on to tertiary education. Um, other things that we were trying to enable was saying that we're not wanting to be seen as charity. We're, although we're paying, if you like, over the odds for the ingredient, the intent here is that we be trading and that the communities gain economic independence through trade. So we're offering a hand up rather than a handout. And to do that, we needed to solicit ideas for business for them. So we we have a kind of microloan scheme where uh, entrepreneurs are supported and weirdly through the Ebola crisis which had befell um, the TY community six months after we first visited the place um, some women came to us saying while we're being quarantined in our villages it's very hard for us to get um, staples like salt and sugar and uh, cigarettes even from the market the biggest market um, nearby, uh, could we borrow some money from you to rent motorbikes so that we could go and following all the hygiene protocols, bring back basically um, dry goods? And we thought it was a fantastic idea and made the money available. And they started these little shops outside of their homes. And since then, those, I think we probably paid for the first 20 or 30 loans that included the lease of these motorbikes to do the, the logistics and some money to, to use to buy the goods. Uh, so the first, you know, the uh, post Ebola, they carried on and we probably paid for, like I said, 20 or 30 of these microloans. They've since been repaid and, and loaned out again. So as a result of us responding to the local needs, there's been a, a kind of banking system set up a very primitive one but it works and it's paying for itself so there have been probably north of 60 loans delivered to young predominantly women entrepreneurs in the villages 
Um, so we're pretty proud of that and thinking that that's like a DIY NGO. And if we can continue to do it with those underlying principles, we feel like we, we could get some scale at that end of our innovation pipeline. I love it. I, I love the, um, this idea that you're building your own circular economy and one great thing begats another great thing and you're blending together purpose and great produce with business acumen to share the wealth a little bit more. I think that's, um, that's cool and it's a really exciting next step for you with the foundation. So if I, I, I kind of end almost looking, looking a little bit outwards and forwards, we've got a sense of what's next for you and what's exciting for Karma and for the foundation. What kind of final wisdom would you share with other pioneers, perhaps others at the start of their journey, uh, people looking to disrupt the status quo, frustrated at the options that are laid out before them? What would, what would you share with them as some wisdom or advice? Look, I always, I'm a bit of admirer of a guy called Keith Yamashita who wrote a book called Unstuck and is a kind of a very influential strategic consultant in innovation and the cultures that create good business like this. And I was lucky enough to meet him on a Zoom call a few weeks ago with a group of founders who I'd sort of stumbled into because some friends had asked if I'd join this and he was on the call. He's one of my heroes. So I was sort of a bit dumbfounded by seeing him turn up in a little corner of my screen, talking very wisely as he does. But in this little book he wrote called Unstuck, um, he had this theory about the balance of a business, that there are some, there are disciplines that make a commercial enterprise work, you know, strategic people coordinate, you know, good, HR, people skills, uh, commercial acumen, having the right tools, having the right operational capability, you know, having brand, having all those things. But what he, and this is what, you know, this is a sort of current challenge for us as an organisation, he would show these things as being in an an imbalance, in a sort of harmonious equilibrium, and that when you had the right amount of these things for your business, in the right tension, and this is about people mostly, then you have a really good, robust, able to be resilient business, something that can cope with something like COVID and, and adapt and, and support its people and, and its commercial integrity. So I'm sort of looking back on that, having just met Keith, I'm going, you know what, I, I, I should look at that again because I feel like we are strong in some areas and we need to build in other areas. So I think, and it may just come from having been through a few of these cycles, is that having that balance gives you resilience. You know, we've got, like you observed, some very strong aspects to our business and some that we need to work on. So I guess the, the single bit of advice there is is, you know, really respect the partnerships you create to, you know, do your thing because you can't do it alone. And although the reason I'm mentioning Keith is because the beginning of that book is a little um, inscription that says, be careful what you wish for. And I always thought that's quite interesting because what you wish for really drives where you go. But it also might create some unintended consequences. So thinking about that, like you've been asking me in this interview, you know, what is the purpose that drives that? How did you, how did that come about? Really investigating that, not in a navel gazing way, but testing it by doing it is, um, is really important. And I think trying to make build equilibrium into the thing you're creating, and it may just be one or two people, but that balance of ability, uh, and complementary skill is crucial. Brilliant. That's a lovely way to bring it in. Thanks, Simon. It, look, it's been really enjoyable for me to spend an hour getting to know you a little bit better. Um, inspiring to hear the stories. You have so much depth in what you've done, and there's a whole load of other stuff I want to ask, but we need to wrap it there. Thank you for sharing the excitement of your vision as well. I really appreciate you joining me today on Pioneers Wanted. Thank you, Phil. I've really enjoyed this too, and happy to continue. I am, um, you know, it's not... Uh, often I get to talk about these things, so I do appreciate it as well. Thank you.
Well, that was a really nice interview to kick off the season. Simon is an inspiring guy to spend time with. You can find more information on Karma Drinks at karmadrinks.co and Simon himself is on Twitter at Cosmo Zero. That's C-O-S-M-O and then a zero. Pioneers Wanted is produced by Hunch, the strategic innovation practice and the home of pioneer leadership. Check us out at brillianthunch.com. Oh.